This episode is brought to you by Destination St. John's. From puffin-packed sea stacks to wintering waterfowl, Newfoundland and Labrador is a paradise for birds and birders alike. Canada's easternmost province boasts some of the world's most spectacular and accessible seabird colonies with mind-boggling numbers of Atlantic puffins, northern gannets, and more lining incredible cliffs and islands. Its forests are alive with northern songbirds, and even the barrens are bountiful with tundra species like willow ptarmigan and rough-legged hawk. Make beautiful St. John's the base camp for your next birding adventure. Check it out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook using the hashtag birds in L. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. Please pardon my somewhat rattly voice today. I have come down with what I believe to be a pollen-related allergy illness. It's not COVID. I'm still COVID-free two years into the pandemic, though I certainly have been testing that more lately. It is spring after all. Got to get out. Aside from all that, I do have some very exciting news to share. Exciting for me, maybe exciting for you, could be. The ABA is traveling to Panama this September, famously the only nation named after a Van Halen song, visiting our friends at the Canopy Tower, which has become, over the last couple decades, one of the premier locations for birding in Central America. We will be traveling with the incomparable Carlos Betancourt. There will be tanagers, there will be hummingbirds, there will be, if we are extremely lucky, Harpy Eagle. You can experience them all with me, if that moves the dial at all. I'm very excited. I've birded Colombia and Costa Rica, and it, there's not a lot I love more than filling those gaps in my eBird map. So you get more information at the ABA website, aba.org travel. It is available now. Maybe it'll fill up fast. I might as well jump. On the show this week, it's this month in birding with a panel heavily laden with vets, we have Jody Lair, we have Jordan Rudder and Brody Cass Talbot. We talk climate change and spring and starling myths and um, ivory build woodpeckers. All that after this week's supersized rare birds. This is your rare bird focus for the end of April 2022. The second half of April was absolutely banging for Newfoundland, so maybe it's appropriate that they bought an ad for this week. Lucky them. Strong winds blowing across from Europe brought an absolute grab bag of cool birds, including European golden plovers, black-tailed godwits, barnacle geese, northern lapwings, but that wasn't all. A Pacific golden plover turned up amongst some of those euros, remarkably Newfoundland's ninth. Notably, there was also a Pacific golden plover in Nova Scotia this week. And throw two first provincial records into the mix as well, a stunning adult brambling, and as it was ordained, the wandering stellar sea eagle, felt the spotlight moving off it and decided that it could not be. Both firsts were found on the Avalon Peninsula, the Eagle, just north of St. John's. Other firsts to note in this special expanded segment, Oklahoma had its first record of hooded oriole, a stunning male at a feeder in Osage County. In Oregon, that state's first record of common crane, long awaited, frankly, was seen in a small flock of sandhills in Haney County near Burns in the east part of the state. And in Florida, what looked very much like a state-first great-tailed grackle was photographed in Miami-Dade, expertly pulled from the ranks of the omnipresent boat-tail grackles. Kudos to those birders for noting the light-eyed, flat-headed weirdo and taking lots of photos. This is a bird that has the potential to range pretty widely over the continent. They've been spreading north and west for decades, but are almost certainly overlooked in the masses of boat-tail in the southeast. That's all for this week. For a full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org rba. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. 
It's the last Thursday of the month, and what we do here on the American Birding Podcast on these days is have a monthly roundup panel, talk some bird news, we share some sightings, and generally have a good time. Uh, That is always true, but perhaps especially true with April's panel, a who's who of returning voices who always have interesting things to say. So let's get to it in reverse alphabetical order. In reverse alphabetical order and starting in the far west, it is our friend from Portland, Oregon and Portland Audubon, Brody Katz Talbot. Hello, Brody. Good to see you. Hey, thanks for having me. And jumping back to the East Coast, to Maryland, where we get to welcome back from the American Bird Conservancy, the former ABA Young Birder of the Year, Jordan Rudder. Hi, Jordan. It's been a while. Hi. It's great <laughs> to be here. Yes. And in the great middle of the great nation of Canada, actually a little bit towards the left, uh, truly, uh, from Drumheller, Alberta and Birds Canada, it is Jody Allaire. Welcome back, Jody. Hey, great to be back. Hey, everyone. Yeah, it's it's so good to have you here. Um, it is it is spring, it is happening. End of April. We are no longer ramping up. We are now in it. I am normally in North Carolina today. I'm speaking to you from Central Florida, uh, where it sometimes feels like spring has already passed. But for the most part, the signs are all here. Birds are moving. They're singing. They're displaying. There are babies in some cases. Uh, it's rare that we have a panel that is so well distributed across the continent. So with that in mind. I want to start off uh, by asking you all, how do you do spring? How do you approach spring birding? Is it methodical? Is it luck? Is it both? What do you, what do you, what do you do? First, you have to deal with Zubin Rua. Yes. Personally, professionally, Absolutely. bird-wise, everything. Yeah. Then you got to deal yep. with your allergies. Oh, yeah. That's a big to... thing in the East. Yes. <laughs> and then you got to deal with either being humble or trying to hide your rustiness. <laughs> from all the winter of not knowing your your eastern warbler calls and then you just go for it yeah you just enjoy it you soak it all in you get out there yeah i agree i think that this time of year is the time of year where i feel like maybe the worst birder because there's all these vocalizations <laughs> that i'm like i'm just terrible at this because i don't know what any of these are and then eventually you're like right okay that's that's a nashville and that's an orange crown chip and uh, and it all comes back. But uh, I, I, I think about um, spring birding somewhat methodically in part because my favorite thing is just to find birds that uh, are moving through that we don't get to see the rest of the year where I mm-hmm. live. So, um, you know, for us, it's uh, mountain bluebirds and natural warblers. We just have a, a narrow window each year to try and catch those birds as they move through. I, I love that. I mean, and just, you know, all of it. But in Portland, we've had a, we have, really felt like it hasn't started yet because it's just been so unseasonably cold mm. um, and rainy that it just feels like it's not quite spring yet. So we're all sort of still waiting for a full-fledged spring birding, which we did not know before apparently means t-shirt birding. We didn't realize how <laughs> tied we <laughs> were to That's when you that. really know you're in it. Although I've done, mm-hmm. I've had some spring mornings where it has been like a hoodie sweatshirt morning or at the very worst, like even a, even a heavy coat morning. Um, you never know what you're going to get in spring. That's, I guess that's part of the fun. Yeah. Um, boy, it's, I don't have much sympathy for, for that explanation of the, the clothing you're forced to wear there, Nate. It's, uh, <laughs> we had a blizzard yesterday <laughs> up here. It's very much still winter. I was in my down coat this morning outside. Yeah. All right. Fair um, enough. But uh, yeah, like, and I get what Brody's saying. I, I like being methodical. Like it's, it's, you know, especially after pretty solid winter and things start coming back. I want to see everything, right? I'm just so excited, like all oh, the waterfowl and the, I love the tundra swans coming back. And I went on like a specific mountain bluebird mission um, there the other week just to just to get one of those. And it's uh, 
uh, I don't know. I, when spring comes around, I just get like overexcited. I think, <laughs> I, you know, I just want to get out and as much as I can and just take in everything, especially after, you know, a winter that's been pretty, pretty tough and long. Yeah. I, I was actually, I should say, I was actually in Kansas last weekend. Was it last weekend? I guess two weeks ago now uh, for a, for a bird festival that was with the prairie chickens. And we were, the, went out early in the morning to see the prairie chickens doing their, their dancing on the Lex. And it was cold. It was really cold. Um, this was the middle of Kansas. Spring was there. Like the birds were singing. The Western meadowlarks were loud and, and, and the horned larks were doing their little kind of sky dancing, tinkling thing. And the chickens obviously were ready. Uh, tons of migrating waterfowl and, and, Shorebirds, shorebirds that should be up your way soon, uh, Jody. Lots of uh, marbled godwits and and long-billed dowagers and and things like that. Uh, but yeah, it was cold and it's the Great Plains, so it was windy, really windy. Uh, I was ready to get back to North Carolina. I will say that. Um, sometimes it feels like it, it's summer before the birds even get here down here. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. All right, I, I guess I have uh, some sympathy for you uh, in your in your. <laughs> down coat uh waiting for your first for signs of spring <laughs> yeah i haven't seen a grackle yet I, you know I oh, wanna, yeah there you go <laughs> you know i do have a like sort of a spring tradition though and i think um i always like to to, to bone up on I, we were just talking about bird vocalizations and, mm-hmm. and reminding i think i think this is something you know maybe it's not said enough but i think you know people have been birding forever i think it's we all like take the time to like study up or, or always find value in studying up and wanting to learn new things and i think i don't know i think it's important to say that's you never get to the point where you just like oh yeah i know the, all the i know all the bird sounds now and i don't need to <laughs> i don't need I'm, to I'm learn finished. it every every spring it's it's relearning lots of things and and i actually yeah. i love yeah. that tradition and and that process of of yeah. you know relearning everything and that's that's i love it it's great yeah yeah i totally agree i've never really felt like i've totally gotten it but i do feel like i learn a little bit more every year um, sure and whether i retain that to the next year is a whole other question but at least i'm learning something every year <laughs> i think winter just lulls us into a false sense of mastery when you know there's 20 songbirds right, right. Like, i know all these birds really well and then all yeah. of a sudden you're overwhelmed by the the flood that's right. I'm going to talk about this really fantastic essay from uh, Scott Widensall that was just recently put out in uh, the spring issue of Audubon magazine. It was a special mm-hmm. migration issue, which is really excellent. Um, and the article is called A Matter of Timing. Can Birds Keep Up with Earlier and Earlier Springs? And and I have to say, you know, a huge shout out to Scott Widensall, right? Like how how fantastic a writer is he like really literally everything he writes (laughs) he is he is just just off the top just to make sure i don't forget to say it he is so good at capturing the 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 science the literature and and communicating in a way that it's understandable and he's very thorough love it yeah literally have his latest book beside my bed at the moment just as a i actually do too (laughs) um yeah there you go um so, but this is a really interesting article and it, and it's spurred on lots of thoughts and lots of conversations with, with many of my birding friends. So I'm glad we get to sort of talk about it. The, the juxt of the article is, uh, is how climate change is altering the timing of the seasons and how that's affecting bird migration. And I think this is something that, that, you know, you hear people talk about it, researchers talk about it. I know many of our conservation organizations that we work for, you know, this is one of the, the big things that we want to get out there, that climate change has a myriad of impacts on the earth. And one of those things is the, is the messing up 
of the phenology or the phenological mismatch of birds and insect uh, hatching. So, and so basically, and if you've never heard that term before, it's basically there are synchronized events like migrating songbirds arriving in time for when insects come out. And that's an advantage in order to have lots of chicks and to, to maximize productivity. And that goes out of alignment with climate change because a lot of these birds are migrating from, from a long way away and uh, spring comes earlier and earlier in the north. They're not aware of that because they're reacting to changes in photo period in order to migrate. So it can cause all sorts of problems. So Scott Widensall, uh, you know, sort of attempts to explain this, talking about how it impacts some birds and, and really kind of lays out the question of, are we pessimistic or are we optimistic about the yeah. future of this? And that, that's really the thing that, that's, that has me thinking a lot. So I'll just throw out a couple examples and maybe we dive into the pessimism or optimism <laughs> angle of this. Um, so uh, spring, as, as we've seen, you know, spring is arriving earlier. Um, not all migrants in North America um, are the same, right? We have shorter distance migrants, birds like American Robin and Song Sparrow that, that winter in the southern U.S., maybe a little bit further south, but don't migrate as long and as far. And for the most part, they have shown some adaptation to, to earlier springs, being able to arrive a bit earlier and, and adapt to that. Although they're not 100% keeping pace. Long distance neotropical migrants, so these are things like warblers and thrushes that are migrating down to South America and, and Central America, they've got a lot further to go and the impacts are much greater on this group of birds. Primarily, you know, climate change is what it's doing is sort of decoupling this relationship between you know, food, uh, food abundance, and the arrival times of, of these birds. And what's interesting is that he has some examples of where some birds are actually making some really interesting adaptations to this. The wood thrush angle is really interesting, showing up that they actually do arrive, especially on the coast, around the same time every year across the Texas, mm-hmm. along the Texas coast, but then they speed up their migration. They reduce the amount of stopover and recovery time. This is a really important time for birds. Yeah. Like you're burning off a lot of energy on this migration journey. So they're actually cutting that short in order to get up to their breeding area uh, sooner to, to go along with that, uh, the, the earlier spring. But how much further can they do that? And long-term implications, how long can they keep that up for where it doesn't affect productivity? That's, that's stuff that's not really that doesn't dive into into this article. And but I think there's a couple of things I want to point out about this. Like this is a, this is a big issue and it's something that I think I think about this one a lot. It is more than just food abundance in terms of climate change adaptation, right? Your winds, ocean levels, overall temperatures, there's a lot of other factors that also can play havoc to bird populations and I think we're in this unfortunate time where it's it's not just the one thing anymore, right? It's not just the DDT mm-hmm. killing off the, these predators, there's so there's like a, just a myriad of different things all working together to cause these problems. Um, so the one thing I will quibble with um, with this article is, you know, the the statement that where he says so far North American songbird migrants appear to be staying in sync, and I would say that's probably true for the United States. Right, it's yeah. not yeah. true for Canada, and I think the the, and the main reason being is that. The further away, the the further towards the yeah. poles you go, the impacts of climate change are amplified. 
and mm-hmm. the impacts of climate change on the Arctic and on the boreal forest are already substantial, and and they're they're much worse and and uh, compared to the temperate regions of of even southern Canada and the United States. And there's data to show it. So in Canada, you know, if you look at the state of Canada's birds report or data from the Canadian Migration Monitoring Network, which is a series of uh, bird observatories set up across Canada. Um, if you look at that data, you know, they show a much different story. They show uh, consistent declines right across the board for all long distance neotropical migrants that breed in Canada. And it also shows massive declines to all, every single long distance migrant shorebird that nests in the Arctic in, in Canada. Overall, the, the, the further a bird travels, the less, the less flex, flexibility they I totally garbled yeah. that entire sentence. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. The further a bird travels, the less flexibility yeah. they have. And, and that's what we're seeing. Anyway, it, I, I think it's, it's certainly important to have that uh, out there. But I think the Canadian North is definitely seeing a, a stronger brunt of this climate change impact and certainly yeah. behooves Birds Canada and and our federal government here to to take some action now to like to really deal with yeah to really deal with this. So okay, so sorry, very long-winded explanation. I, it was a great article and, and and I think he sort of ends it off with like should we be optimistic or pessimistic of of the future of this and and Scott says he's a little of both. Um and I'll have to say I am probably in in exactly the same boat. Yeah. Um, as, as he is, you know? Yeah. I mean, if I were completely looking at this from, you know, an ivory tower looking down and not having to live with the effects of all of, you know, this climate change, I'd be like, wow, there's some really interesting things going on there. Uh, it's kind of cool how birds are reacting to this in, in a positive way, you know, that are sort of, they're getting back on track to some extent, but unfortunately I'm not entirely there because we do have to live in this world you know, a lot of people have seen declines in bird populations and, and over the years, and I don't know how to think about it. Yeah, optimist, pessimist, little of both. I don't know where. It goes back and forth. I swing kind of wildly, frankly. You know, and get, Nate, getting back to your earlier question about our, our spring birding traditions, one of the things that I love about uh, eBird is the ability to compare, you know, year over year how things are changing. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I looked at uh, Rufus hummingbirds, and sure enough, over the last couple of years, they've showed up much earlier than they have the previous five years mm-hmm. and uh and being able to track so I, I sort of like to track that phenology you know in some ways these birds showing up earlier is on that optimist side where uh they're adapting uh because they right. have to and so that that does give us a little hope but then you know i i was out birding a few weeks ago and i saw a vox's swift and it was in march um the end of march 28th and I thought, well, that seems early. And I checked and it was on eBird for our county, which is a pretty well-birded county. It was the uh, first March record for Vox's Swift. And then uh, almost two weeks later, we had the first uh, measurable snow in, in uh, since we started keeping records in Portland. You know, we had like mm. five inches of snow, right? So you've got this Vox's Swift that that maybe tried to speed up and, and maybe went faster right. than normally would and gets all the way up here. And then snow. you've got this freak snow event. So in Portland, that right. was our probably third major abnormal uh, extreme weather event in the last year and a half that probably all three of them have had at least some level of, of bird mortality. So on the pessimist side, I think, you know, these, uh, these extreme weather events, um, yeah, really make me, uh, uh, yeah, kind of, kind of worried. And I think, you know, optimists versus pessimists, you know, optimists think everything's gonna be fine. And pessimists think it's all going to hell. I think that 
probably it's it's in the middle somewhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and whichever one you're leaning towards uh, changes on a day to day basis. <laughs> but isn't it also pessimist, optimist? There's like a third pause category of just like birds are amazing. Like let's just <laughs> think about this mind boggling aspect that I don't actually think we can comprehend. Of like you're telling me they're speeding up. Like I, I feel like the the comedic relief joke about comparing that to you know pandemic gym exercise routines or something like <laughs> i couldn't do that i already can't <laughs> migrate yeah. fly 500 miles across the gulf of mexico in 24 hours like that's amazing like birds are just incredible so i also don't want to lose that like appreciation yeah. of these individuals and i also can't help but be like okay folks this is another rallying call your backyard matters no matter how big or small the area around you is we can all do things today because that stopover habitat, those rest stops for these birds are going to become even more and more vital, literally. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't don't overlook and think that, you know, we only should be working on parks or something. I think it'll be really interesting to see the conservation strategies coming out of. For sure. You know, if the Arctic, if the boreal are having these amplified impacts that Jody mentioned, how are we going to try and get more of the stopover habitat? and corridors between neighborhoods and things like that to actually help support those long distance migrants then, you know, we can't overlook all of our individual actions and, and part in this story. Yeah. You know, the, the birds are amazing. Birds are reacting. I mean, that's, you're, you're absolutely right. Call the arms, like, look, they're, they're reacting in ways that we couldn't have possibly expected. Um, let's, let's give them what they need. Let's work for, you know, climate justice, let's get on these, these 75 to 100 companies that are driving the vast majority of climate change and make sure that we can, you know, when you think about it that way, it almost feels like something that can be addressed. And, and I hope people keep that in mind and, and keep, you know, believing that this can be addressed, because I don't think it's really helpful to kind of devolve into sort of this pessimistic mess that everything is going to fall apart, because a lot will, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but there's still some hope where you want to find it. And I, it's, it's productive to keep focusing on that. Maybe that's just my personality. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's helpful to kind of fall into, fall into a complete pessimistic attitude about this stuff. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that, Nate. Like I'm, I'm a pretty optimistic person really yeah. about everything my whole life, you know, and I'm just, just, you know, just that little bit pessimistic about, you know, some of the long-term trends here to really motivate mm -hmm. me. Um, yeah. You know, it's that little bit of pessimism that really has me motivating that that we need to do stuff. And I think, you know, I think there is a place for birds in in the climate change action story to help motivate, absolutely, you know, and inspire people and to to get people to change what they're doing. Like it's it's going to take a lot to deal with with climate change. Birds are just mm -hmm. one of the things, um, but I think it's an important thing for people to be aware that the, the decisions that we make on a regular basis don't just impact. Um, you know, far away reaches of the world that they impact, you know, the birds that might be coming through your yard, they, they impact so many different things. Um, so it's not, it's not just for us. It's, it's for the birds too. Right. And it's important. Yeah. And because of that, maybe birds are such a, especially useful tool for motivating people for climate action, because everyone has a bird story. Everyone has a bird experience tied to that, to what's happening. And, and maybe you've got some people who are willing to do something about it. So. Yeah. They could be that wedge to create compassion, right. you know, for, exactly. for this, for this problem.
Yeah. And one would hope that if these tiny birds are able to fly, you know, 2000 miles in 10 days instead of 14, that humans might also be able to adjust our own <laughs> behaviors a little bit. European starlings, pretty much everyone has an opinion of them. And <laughs> among that opinion is somehow one of the very few actual like historical stories, I would say, about um, introduced or um, non-native species in the U.S., right? So I'll, I would say, at least among birders, it's generally known that European starlings are in North America because of Shakespeare. It's a great story. It ties up really nicely. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say it's lovely, but that, that's a little silly. I didn't realize this, but not it's not just someone that released these starlings and, and was a huge fan of Shakespeare. It was Eugene Schifflin in 1890 released a few dozen individual starlings. As, you know, the story went, those few starlings radiated across the country um, and now uh, number millions of individuals today. One could just accept the story and, and move on. But Dr. Don Miller and Lauren Fugate at Allegheny College had questions <laughs> because, dun, 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 this is all a myth. What you thought was true is no. not true, which totally blew my mind because this is something i had just accepted just, yeah i think a lot of people i just did, knew yeah. i just that that was it i will point out i won't call out but i'll point out that many bird organizations even have this now myth in the fun facts section of their species profile for this bird so there may need to be some updating <laughs> <laughs> uh dr miller and uh lauren fugate confirmed that eugene Schifflin did release 40 birds. However, the connection to Shakespeare is totally suspect, totally made up. Um, so how did this come to be? They found out that Edwin Way Teal is the origin of this myth. Uh, Edwin wrote in 1948 that Eugene loved Shakespeare. I don't know why. I, I hope that my loves are accurately portrayed in the future. Um, <laughs> because Teal claimed that Eugene was influenced by the Shakespeare Garden. Side note, you can actually visit or go birding there today. However, that garden was not even planned for until a decade after Eugene died, which would then be 23 years after the release of the Starlings. So the timeline there definitely does not line up. The other interesting kicker of the story is that because of museum specimens, shout out to why museums are so uh, crucial and important, they actually had specimens from museums and did DNA testing between historic specimens and current like living starlings today, and the genetics don't match up. Mm -hmm. So current living starlings in the U.S., again, sorry, Jody, love Canada. It's not where the research was. <laughs> the, the American starlings today, uh, genetics show that they aren't descendants of Eugene starlings. So what's going on there? Where'd they come from? I am definitely not a geneticist, so I can't enlighten us there. But it's just so fascinating that, again, this pretty widespread, I would say, myth story. I'm debunking it. I mean, I'm leaning into the researchers. Uh, I'm not taking credit for their work, but I'm on the ABA podcast debunking. That's right. It's debunked. This. And I think, if I may, before others jump in, it's just one, it's 
fascinating because it really highlights just what do we know, both in terms of like science, facts, history, birding lore, stories, things like that. But also, I actually really appreciate this because, again, everyone has an opinion about European starlings, but like you can't overlook, they have really beautiful plumage and like right now in the breeding season, their bills are so yellow. And as someone that lives on the top of an apartment building, I appreciate that I have a male that has claimed my window box as his Shakespearean stage for singing <laughs> and attracting mates. So shout out to just like always ask questions because this is yep. fascinating and shows how much we have to learn about ourselves, our, our birding community and everything, as well as birds. So is this going to help people's perception of starlings or hurt people's perceptions of starlings if this uh if this story is debunked did people like or be willing to tolerate starlings because of the association with shakespeare and now they will absolutely have no tolerance of starlings at all i wonder what do the starlings pr agent have to say about this story that's what i want to know well see that's like such an interesting twist to the conversation because that's not even where my mind is going oh. um, <laughs> but that's like such a good point about like yes positive PR for the starlings the association with Shakespeare was always good for starlings and now it's not there yeah I'm not sure about that you don't think so well I I think that people like the story, but I don't think it helps them like starlings because I think Maybe what it not. shows is th is this sort of antiquated idea of things you know being better somewhere else so apparently uh and i've heard of this before portland oregon was one of the places that they released starlings back in the late 19th century uh, and there was no mention of shakespeare it was just this idea that well europe is the center of culture and right. everything else yeah and so we should have the same birds as europe and they released them and and we have since grown to um not believe that that was a good idea so i, I think that people <laughs> just like the story i don't think it actually helps the starlings yeah. image. I, I don't know. I'm willing to be convinced otherwise. But wasn't that the reason there's a lot of European birds in New Zealand too? Because there was just some English colonists who were like, hey, our birds are better than these birds, which is totally wrong. And then they just released like robins and blackbirds and starlings in there because they wanted to be home and they weren't uh, appreciative enough of the uh, tuis and uh, kias and all the other cool birds they have down there. Now, that is an interesting part. So I'm referencing a New York Times article. There also mm -hmm. is a free version. And the article is, is pretty long. So just yeah. in case uh, listeners want to go and, and read it for themselves, which I have the link in the show do. notes. Yep. It does have a huge conservation impact section of the article. It's usually overlooked, especially because they aren't native to, to the country, that European starlings are actually in decline. They're having mm -hmm. huge population declines, which could be, again, an indicator of something else going on, uh, things that, you know, conservation really needs to address. So in terms of like PR for the starling, technically, this is a species that needs help. Um, and then they also have a section in the article of the impact of starlings being an invasive non-native on native species. They go through kind of how this is, and Jody mentioned this earlier, this is just one threat, one component of the full story. We can't currently say that starlings have actually had a negative population impact on other species. Mm -hmm. So usually 
uh, part of the negative opinion of starlings is that they outcompete other species. Right. Um, however, we can't definitively say that. So going back to PR, that's something that, you know, the starling definitely could use help with debunking as well. Well, you, you work in PR, Jordan. Maybe you should be the starling PR person. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Starlings were the original Shakespeare. Maybe that's, right. that's where it came from. They were the original. They inspired Mozart. You know, I think Starlings are really amazing birds, right? Like they, I love this article because I think like the rest of you, I, my mind was also blown that I thought this was a thing. And now I'm like, why didn't I think to even, you know, question that story? We just all just assumed that, oh yeah, oh yeah, Shakespeare lover makes total sense. But obviously, nope, it's, uh, it's, that's not the case. I think it's that article like debunked a whole bunch of things with, with starlings. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's important because, and it's unfortunate, like I know they're an introduced bird into North America, you know, but they're still a bird and they're still really cool. And starlings do murmurations, right? Like one of, you know, one of the things that like non-birders know about birds is that there is a bird called a starling and they do these crazy pattern flock movements, right? Like, starlings actually could do a lot in terms of inspiring people to connect with with nature so just a little shout out starling in terms of their their impact they can have right they're they're pretty cool absolutely i mean you know we can't take for granted urban species really too right you know talking about that connection talking about birds can be in birds can help with climate change issues or folks caring about nature or whatever you know european starlings rock pigeons house sparrows i mean those are the birds that i right next to washington dc see every day Mm -hmm. and you know thinking about accessibility issues where people live green spaces things like that you know if everyone has a bird story sometimes it's with those species that could definitely use good pr because they're helping our messaging our conservation efforts and everything else like i feel like this is kind of going down the rabbit hole of like Stop saying there are good and bad species. Just love right. birds. They're just species. Yeah, <laughs> like, just birds. You know, yeah. um, and they all have a role to play, just like we all have a role to play in helping them. I like this. Uh, I like the writer for pointing out, A, that starlings are declining in their native and introduced ranges, and B, that we do the same thing with starlings we do with lots of species, where we scapegoat them for the ecological catastrophe that colonizers oh, yeah. caused on this continent. Um, but I do think that my favorite part was just that, that how that, that story came to be. It sounded like the first time the person, uh, talked about it, he he just sort of randomly associated these two things that were completely unrelated. And it sounds like maybe that person got like some positive reinforcement from that and then just went with it. You know, it it reminds me, uh, it's a bit of an aside, but it's, so I used to be a raft guide and raft guides just lie about everything or they just make everything up, you know, cause it's easier than actually researching stuff. And I remember this raft guide coming back from, from the Caribbean where they'd been a kayaking guide over the winter and saying, I learned how pelicans die. And, and I was intrigued oh, I and he said, they, they die of starvation because, and I was, and I was like, okay, um, go on. He said, because when they dive for fish, they keep one eye open as they dive and eventually they go blind in that eye. And so then they have to start diving with the other eye open and then they go blind in that eye and then they're blind and they can't fish anymore. 
And I just looked at him and I said, that does not make any sense on an ecological <laughs> level, like a, a evolutionary level. And so I looked it up and there's a blog post out there that says yeah. there is a pervasive myth that pelicans go blind and starve to death. And it appears to have been started decades ago by a kayaking guide in the Caribbean. <laughs> and, um, you know, but that's just like, that's stories that, you know, a good story. People love it. They don't really care yeah, they about don't care. I mean, the stories. It's the got thing. a hook. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. because the real story is much more boring. Um, so I think I'm just going to stay with the Shakespeare story. It's you Yeah. Know, well, it's I mean, just... <laughs> it makes sense that it would be Shakespeare, the great bard to uh, be associated with this uh, giant myth about starlings. It, it 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 like we said at the beginning, it ties it up so perfectly. <laughs> That's right. So I was out birding yesterday. And one of the things I look forward to in spring is uh, one of these birds that, that come through that we don't get the rest of the year are in Pidnax flycatchers, uh, mm -hmm. at least certain ones. So in Portland, everybody, uh, you sort of expect Hammonds and you sort of hope for Dusky. And maybe if you get really lucky, you'll get a gray. And of course, these birds all look uh, pretty much identical. And so we, we both are excited about it and in fear of finding a silent <laughs> impid because then you're literally trying to gauge the number of millimeters on specific feathers, you yeah. know, the primary projection, like how long are the, the feathers at the end of the wing? And, um, and it's this tiny difference, right? And, and if you are in the presence of somebody who has spent time listening to them, hopefully it calls and you're able to identify it that way. Otherwise it goes down as the dreaded spa. Um, but, uh, but it's a great, you know, I think when I first started birding, I would look at, so Dusky and Hammonds are the two that we have the most confusion with. And, um, and you look at them and you just think, why are these different species? Like these should be the same species. Some people still say, just lump all the impids. Um, <laughs> we see that, uh, one of the main things that, that, that keys us into this is that they have different vocalizations. And then sure enough, you follow them to their breeding grounds and there's slight changes or slight differences in range, slight differences in breeding habitat. They don't actually seem to like each other. Uh, they sound different. And then genetic testing confirms that they're a separate species. So that's sort of a classic uh, cryptic species. I'm not sure which one of the two would be cryptic in that situation. Maybe they both are, I guess. Equally, equally cryptic. Equally <laughs> cryptic. Yeah. Um, so there's this cool story in All About Birds about how uh, ornithologists are using a resource that did not previously exist, which is huge amounts of community science driven data. And in this case, the crowdsourced library of bird, bird vocalizations, you know, people are going out and recording bird vocalizations and then um, they putting them on their eBird checklist and that gets uploaded into the Macaulay library. And that gives ornithologists the ability to comb through huge amounts of bird vocalizations and the ability to find other cryptic species. So one of the big ones they talk about is Tapaculo, which um, is a number of different Tapaculos in Peru. And it was sort of accepted that they were all one. And, you know, humans, it's funny that... Um, we still do this, but we still sort of lump birds by what they look like. But these differences in sound uh, are probably more of an indicator in a lot of ways of, of how closely uh, related they are or not. And so, um, yeah, so Tapaculos, they've, they've been able to prove that actually there's um, a bunch of different Tapaculos and it's listening to their vocalizations that's really helped to separate them. And the same goes with Rufus antpittas, uh, which are not apparently one species, but 16 different species that mostly it's that difference in their vocalizations that helps us to separate out these birds. So it's pretty neat to think about 
uh, how hobbyist birders are able to contribute to this sort yeah. of understanding of the fact that there's lots of different species. I think that the effort to create different species, despite how much of a headache it may make for birders looking through impids, uh, is is actually really important because it shows us genetically distinct populations that are worthy of of their own unique conservation efforts. Right? There's a real world effect to creating this arbitrary line, somewhat arbitrary line between species. And, um, and certainly in places uh, like both of these examples are uh, in Peru and in the Andes, uh, but are just great examples of how there's much more genetic difference between these birds than maybe we expected. Uh, the article also goes into how some of these uh, questions are still unanswered in um, North America, in the United States and in Canada, where we've got birds like marsh wren and other species that do we know have different songs on each side of the continent and mm -hmm. some of them it turns out are not very genetically distinct like chipping sparrows may sound different east and west but they're genetically pretty different so it's just sort of fun to think about how how hobbyist birders can go out and be recording bird vocalizations and be contributing to a broader scientific understanding uh by you know being able to provide all this data there and you know, Macaulay is now, they, they said, uh, this is a little out of date, but they said almost a thousand, a thousand audio recordings a day are being uploaded into Macaulay, uh, giving us a treasure trove of, of data. Uh, and, you know, the, the precursor being Xenocanto, I think it's a little easier now mm -hmm. with, with Macaulay because you just attach it to your eBird checklist. It yeah. was sort of, uh, the article is inspiring to me to go out and spend more time recording birds. Do you all um, do much audio recording? Do you? use a separate fancy setup or do you just hold up your phone and you hear something weird? I hold up my phone. Hey, Jody, you're just showing off your little, uh, your little dead cat. On I got, the end of got your... a fa fancy new microphone. I'm testing out yeah. this spring. Yeah. That's I used cool. to just use the phone, but I, I'm, I have really gotten into doing sound recordings. Like I've always loved bird song anyway. Um, and it's so easy to just take your, your, your smartphone out and do a recording and add it to a checklist and get a sonogram. And it, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm, loving the the learning in the new that goes to recording bird sounds and it's i you know it's no longer just oh i wonder if i can get a photo of that it's now yeah i really want to get an audio get, recording of that audio you know? recording. It's, yeah it's it's pretty yeah it's pretty addicting it's it's the sort of thing where you know all this technology is sort of trickling down to consumer quality all this stuff that used to be like professional quality uh cameras microphones all this sort of media acquiring devices and now they are in the palm of our hands and uh leave it to birders to find ways to apply this stuff in really cool cool uh ways i so many birders have gotten into sound recording i i, I do it from time to time i wish i did more i'm actually into digiscoping right now because i just got a new scope i would take these little videos and now i want a little microphone that i can hook up to my phone that i can get the uh the audio while i'm taking these videos rather than just like the audio of me breathing loudly into the <laughs> into the video which is what i get a lot of also um, scientifically yeah. valuable oh yeah especially yeah a lot of great sonograms uh, to upload to my to my ever checklist with that all this stuff is so accessible now there's so many different ways to birds so many different ways to enjoy birds i'm glad that the, there are so many tools available for people to find what they really like and i have to give a shout out to cryptic species like i just want to say i i love cryptic species i, I, I think this species. idea that you've got, you know, species that may look the same, but they're actually reproductively isolated and genetically completely different. That's wonderful stuff, isn't it? Like, I, I think it's really, and the fact that you can use songs to like open that door 
to, to mm-hmm. you know, to see that difference. I, I don't, I just, I really, I like that we don't know everything and I like that we're still learning new stuff. Right. And birds, boy, do they, birds teach us that like weekly, what monthly. Was, what was Jordan saying? Birds are yeah. amazing. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I'm going to jump in here and just say, I had two reactions to this. One was, I want a Terra. I want to, I want to move, have backyard, get a Terra. That's amazing. Yeah, oh, yeah. In terms things. of the, yeah. the sound, like when's sound coming. impacting conservation. I think that's been overlooked Absolutely. for so long. You know, we're talking about the sound impacting species being determined, but also the conservation is amazing. And then the other thing, I'll explain who he is in a second for new listeners, but I want to know what Ted Parker would say. Yeah. So Ted Parker was this incredible, how do you describe Ted Parker? There's not even a biography. You know, he's like like, the Indiana Jones of, of birding. And he was like this guy that was preternaturally just gifted at bird vocalizations such that he was part of this team that they would send into the tropics to do these sort of, flash really quick surveys of all the animals that were found there and he was the bird guy on that team so they would drop him they would drop him in these places that were under threat and they would do this like really quick and dirty survey of everything that was found there was like a ted parker was the bird guy there's like a bug guy and a mammal person that would set out little traps and all sorts of really cool stuff but that's neither here nor there but he was like this this gifted ear birder yeah, and he did all of these recordings. I looked it yeah. up and Yeah, they're all in Macaulay Library, all his recordings. Over ten thousand. Yeah. Over ten one person This was in the eighties. Yeah, and he died in unfortunately the, yeah. in a plane crash in the in the Andes, but But like you, I feel like especially if you if you have been in the birding community, whether you hear it or you're you're just aware or whatever, like Ted Parker is just this this symbol, the sky. Like that you can't talk about yeah. bird song without talking yeah. about Ted Parker. For sure. And so to think about, you know, all of the new technology, all of the accessibility that we're talking about with your phone and recordings and everything. Like, I just, I wish there was a way, you know. Oh, what could he have figured out? Like, what could he have figured out? Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe there's a Ted Parker out there uh, still to come. The next young birder of the year. The next one. You're going to amaze us. There's some pretty amazing young birders out there, that's for sure. Let's move on to the question of the month Uh, is a topic that I actually wanted to move off of when it first came out because I've sort of found the whole of the discourse uh, sort of tiresome and frustrating. Um, But it was picked up by some rather serious news outlets uh, and has been making the rounds. So uh, we'll go ahead and and do it. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, of the recent preprint, not peer reviewed, not published, uh, entitled uh, Multiple Lines of Evidence Indicate Survival of the Ivory-Billed Woodpecker. In Louisiana, and I, I think that it this paper probably would have been destined to sort of fade into the morass of the sketchy ivory build uh, related stuff if it weren't for a couple notable names attached to it: um, Bob Ford of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Stephen Lada of the National Aviary, whose involvement just makes the whole thing sort of more frustrating because it's just, I, it's not good, <laughs> guys. It's just blurry photos, and. This whole ivory build thing for years has just been like an exercise in misinterpreting ambiguous photos and then kind of shoehorning your desired result into the ambiguity. You do this sort of thing where you sort of make up field marks and then you see these photos and say, oh, those are the field marks that are there. Oh, I don't know. It's um, 
granted there are a couple photos from this thing that that look kind of interesting but how many identifiable photos of woodpeckers did they take with these trail cameras that they set up such that they can sort of cherry pick these few that look the most like ivory-billed woodpeckers and put them into this paper these few that were all taken in poor conditions and apparently ivory-billed only show up when conditions are bad uh, a couple of them seem very clearly to be pileated woodpeckers to me I mean red-headed woodpeckers to the point where I have to sort of question these people's ability to identify birds in the field, which I, I don't want to do, which is what I don't really like about this. The mind sees what it wants to see. We're all birders here. We know the ways that we can be fooled when we're in the field. The way that you can convince yourself with a brief view that you saw something that you really didn't see happens all the time. And I, I think that's what's happening here, too. I don't know. It pains me greatly to be the skeptic here. Uh, because these are people with significant scientific cachet attached to this. And the Iberville Woodpecker is this tragic loss, and I feel like we just constantly stuck in the denial stage of grief. I don't think that we can really actually get past it and kind of talk about why it happened. And there are some bad actors mixed in who are taking advantage of well-intentioned novices. But you know, my, my main issue with this has mostly been sort of the credulousness of the media because of the names attached. Uh, NPR treated it like it was sort of a cute little morning story. Uh, I also think that it will eventually find a home in a journal because the methods are sound, even if the results are kind of weird. <laughs> this is just bad birding and questionable science, and it's exhausting. And that's really all I sort of have to say about it. Yeah. So that's the question of the month, I guess. What, 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 what's the deal with this? <laughs> I would like to um, play devil's advocate. Please. Uh, but I just really can't. I just really struggle with it. Uh, I really, I, I actually spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to do it, and I, I couldn't. Um, yeah, no, I appreciate that. I appreciate the effort. I couldn't in good faith because I think that, uh, like you said, like being a birder, the one thing I've learned over and over again is that uh, you can't trust a bad look. You know, you can't uh, trust like a bad I get look. a bad look at something, I try and turn it into something, and once I get a good look, I'm like, oh, that's definitely not that super rare bird that I. It happens it every time I go out. Because I yeah. like to kind of make that guess, right? You like you kind of not to test yourself. You want to make the guess about what you see. But you know, when you're wrong, you're wrong. When you're when you're right, it makes you look great. But when you're wrong, you're just like, all right, it happens. Mistakes happen. Yeah. But like, no one wants to admit that they're wrong with this. And 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 two bad looks don't equal it being the bird that you want it to. And, and fifty <laughs> pieces of bad true. evidence don't equal one good piece of evidence that there yeah. actually are ivory bills. I think the closest that I can get to defense of this is I think that if we look at the debate, there's kind of on one side, you have people that want ivory bills to still exist. And on the other side, you have people that really, really, really want ivory bills to still exist. You know, we, we all want these to still be around. Right. And, and so the only thing that I like about it is that, um, it doesn't bother me if somebody wants to spend the next 40 years paddling through sure. this world looking for one It's better than watching football, probably. Um, and hey, and there's a small part of me that does hope that someday somebody's going to find an actual verifiable piece of evidence um, or, you know, actually get an identifiable photo. Uh, I'll, I keep that dream alive, but, but um, unfortunately, I, I haven't seen it yet. Well, hope, hope is the thing with feathers, right? That's what they say, and right? And so if you're in the camp of, of hope, you want to play the Bee Gees, have this bird stand alive. Just do something. Go out there and take conservation action. You do what you can. Don't just keep talking about it. Agree. Where yeah, I'm landing. That's good. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you do you. I'm not gonna tell you what to believe, what what's real, what's not. I just hope that if you truly do love this species, you do something. And if you don't believe 
this news. Let's go. Let's go help Hawaii. Let's yeah, go help one that needs the birds it, yeah. that are undeniably living and breathing right now today that so desperately need our help. The ones that I am playing the BG song for because, you know, the thing about these species too is that when you help one, you help so many others, other birds and other animals and the environment. So really, I don't, I don't care what path you take as long as we all end on this, like, we're going to help birds and the, and the environment. I agree. And this was sort of, um, this is sort of tied with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife decision to delist the bird based on lack of evidence and essentially say that it, it is extinct. I guess I don't really see why that designation would prevent people from continuing to look for it if they believe that it's still there. Like, I don't think it changes anything, right? If you find the evidence, then it's a relatively easy bureaucratic decision to make it not extinct anymore. And then we go forward from there. And I think they sort of rushed this because of that designation. And maybe they're just not thinking it all the way through. Like, it doesn't stop you from continuing to look. Like, you can continue to look. But in the meantime, you're sort of wasting a lot of time of the people who are trying to do good work for conservation for birds all over the place. And that's... that. For me, that's the part that really sort of annoys me, I guess. That's the part that gnaws at me. I'll weigh in, you know, as someone who's worked on species at risk for, I don't know, two decades now. Mm -hmm. And and as a kid, you know, reading uh, The Last of the Curlews by Canadian author Fred Bosworth, like that book was devastating, like (laughs) absolutely heartbreaking book. Um that I recommend you should read. Um, <laughs> if you want I, to be really depressed. And it's World <laughs> Curlew Day. Wrecked. Yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> World Curlew Day. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, read that book about the, the, the you know, the demise of the Eskimo Curlew. And and, mm-hmm. and I sort of, and it's probably in many ways shaped that I wanted to work on species at risk, not so much to help find and bring back the Eskimo Curlew, but to work on the species that right now need our, mm-hmm. our attention. So I, I guess, uh, you know, I, I think my only perspective here is that, and I think Jordan Jordan nailed it, right? I think there are some species right now, and I'll go back to Hawaii and say specifically, you know, Akikiki and uh, the Kiwikiu uh, and Akake. It's looking like they'll be functionally extinct in two to three years, looking at the the data trends, right? And mm-hmm. that that should be on NPR. That should be on CBC. Yeah. Canadian equivalent NPR. I'm just going to keep doing this because, you know, that's, I guess, Canadian in the room. Um, (laughs) You know, that should be in all the magazines. Like it's, it's there are species right now that are, that are going through the the same kind of fate that the Eskimo curlews and the ivory-billed woodpeckers, the Carolina parakeet gone through obviously different, different mechanisms for their declines, obviously, but I want to see more attention for those. And, and certainly my, my priorities, like, yes, if people want to go looking for, for ivory bills and find one. Yes, please, please find one. Great. Um, <laughs> great. Go, go to it. Um, but for my own interest, I want to focus all of my energy on trying to help those birds that we are seeing disappear right in front of our faces right now. I agree. And, um, You've just uh, indicated that I'm way too deep down the wormhole of Iverbill Woodpecker stuff, and I need to pull <laughs> myself out of it uh, before I get totally nuts. Anyway, thank you so much, Jordan and Brody and Jody. Uh, I didn't realize that that rhymed there. It's been great to talk to you. Um, I hope you have a, a great spring. Uh, please check out the uh, articles that we talked about. You can find them in the show notes, and you can find all the links to the various cool stuff that 
my panel is doing uh, in the show notes as well. Enjoy your May. That's the that's the good stuff anyway. Thanks so I can't much. Wait. Migration. Yeah. yeah. Good birding, everyone. Good birding. So, I can't believe we didn't talk about snarge. <gasps> oh, I wanted to talk about snarch. Oh, I no. wanted to talk about snarch. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. <laughs> American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like great magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us, even me, to Panama. Get information at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs today to Jason Adams of Carrollton, Kentucky, and Benjamin Henry of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Lane McCaig of Huntsville, Alabama, all of whom recently joined the ABA. Noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much, and welcome to the ABA. Technical production is by John Lowry, uh, who, confused by the recent name changes, keeps calling Columba Livia by its old name. So if you are filling out the Ebert checklist for him on an outing, just know he ain't talking about Dove. He, he's actually talking about pigeons, rock pigeons. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who, when drawing attention to the Keening sorrowful call of Pandion Haliatus, are known to say, ooh, Osprey's crying. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. But on Twitter, we are at ABA. Few knew that Eddie Van Halen's most righteous guitar solo comes from an instrumental track about finches wandering into southern Canada and the U.S. Everyone interprets it wrong. It's not eruption, it's eruption. But we know, we actually know it's about birds because it segues immediately to You Really Got Me. And how is that not about an evening gross beak at your feeder? Questions, comments can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.